Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. British artist Phyllida Barlow, a two-time Modern Art Notes podcast guest, died earlier this week. She was 78. Barlow came from an illustrious British family, one thick with Huxleys and Wedgwoods, a royal physician, and one particularly famous Darwin. Instead of joining a parade of ancestors within the British establishment, Barlow devoted her life and career to questioning, upturning, and reinventing. Her chosen profession was teaching at University College London's Slade School of Fine Art and sculpting, a medium which she seemed to reject and change in equal measure. She represented Britain in Venice and had solo shows in museums in Nuremberg, West Palm Beach, Des Moines, Munich, and Zurich, and in London at the Tate and the Royal Academy. I'm hugely grateful that Barlow came onto this program twice. The first time was in 2013, when she was the breakout star of that year's Carnegie International. Her 2012 sculpture, Upturned House, all one word, now in the Carnegie's collection, might be the single most awesome new sculpture I've seen in the last decade. I remember taping that program before dawn in a hotel room in Studio City just outside Los Angeles when it was midday in the UK. I was discombobulated and a little scattered. Barlow was kind and gentle and smart throughout. It was one of those shows that I knew was good as soon as we were done taping. And as usual, I knew that if the audience got something out of it, it was because the artist carried the program, and did she ever. Barlow agreed to come back on the program in 2015, when the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presented what might have been the best exhibition of new work that Barlow ever presented in the United States. We taped that one before a live, standing-room-only audience. That Barlow could attract an overflow audience in Dallas is no surprise. Before the art dealerships got around to discovering her, Barlow's work was embraced in Dallas. The first two solo exhibitions she had outside the UK were in Dallas, both in 2003. Her next exhibition outside the UK in 2005 was in Dallas, too. This week's program features both of those conversations. First, the 2013 program, and then after the second break, the 2015 program. Phyllida Barlow, after the break. Now open at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Dwayne Linklater, my mother's side, interrogating the construct and culture of museums, their conventions, and their historical exclusion of indigenous content. My mother's side features sculpture and video that focus on ancestral practices, digital translations of tribal objects held by museums, and a series of large-scale structures made with teepee poles. Get more information and plan your visit to see Dwayne Linklater, my mother's side, at mcachicago.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is proud to announce the opening of the new galleries for Art of the Islamic Worlds. The galleries display the entire MFAH collection of Islamic art, enhanced by the Hussein Afshar collection, an exquisite selection of Persian masterworks. See historic paintings, ceramics, precious metalware, finely woven silk fabrics, and carpets. Learn more at mfah.org slash Islamic Worlds. Experience the collision and circulation of cultures through Griselda Rosas's collection of textile drawings and sculptural installations. The San Diego Tijuana-based artist incorporates natural pigments and collage with adopted embroidery skill and inventive imagery to explore themes of inheritance and intergenerational knowledge. Now through August 2023, See Rosas's first solo museum exhibition at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. 
And we're back. Phyllida Barlow, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. So you have several significant pieces in the Carnegie International, and along with an exhibition this past summer at the Des Moines Arts Center, they serve as kind of a, a, a an almost introduction of your work to American audiences. So let's let's start at the Carnegie. Upturned House, the, the sculpture up on the second floor of the museum, is one of the most awesome things I've seen in a long time. It addresses about 20 things at once, painting, sculpture, natural disaster, the metaphor of a world turned upside down, all kinds of things. And I'd like to ask you about it by posing to you a question that I understand you posed to your students or posed to your students when you were a teacher. And that is, what kind of experiment is Upturned House and does it have a conclusion? That's a great question. I'll begin at the end. The conclusion, in a way, emerged. The problem I have with making sculpture is that I don't necessarily have a conclusion in mind. Therefore, endings, finishings, conclusions tend to creep up on the work rather than on me. It, it is a very much a relationship making a piece of work that begins recently with as little knowledge as possible. That seems to be my preferred position to take so that I'm not working closely with an image, but more with a collection of maybe quite disparate components. And there is then the, the task of trying to make these components come together. Maybe that's what the experiment is in the first place. I have told this anecdote about these three upturned houses I've made, one that was shown in London, the second that was shown at Hauser and Worth in New York this time last year that has then now find, found a home in the Carnegie Museum. And the, the third upturned house, which is broken upturned house, which will be shown at the Norton Museum in a few weeks' time. But the whole process of beginning these upturned houses came from a description I heard on British radio, which was a reporter, a journalist going back to New Orleans about four weeks after Katrina had struck. And it interviewed a man who went to find his house and he hadn't been able to get out to the place where he knew his house was, obviously, because it was underwater and under this thick black silt. And this man described in quite extraordinary terms how he waded down the road, which he knew was the road to the part of New Orleans where he lived. And he got deeper and deeper into this black silt until he was quite bewildered about the location. But then he spotted this solitary tree and he knew that tree, even though it was stripped of all its leaves, he knew it was the, the tree on the corner of the street where he lived, but there was nothing but ferocious, savage debris everywhere. But when he walked a bit further down the street or rather waded down the street through this thick mud, he saw this house that was his house. Now, what was so extraordinary about his description 
was that he didn't actually mention, as far as I can remember, the word hugs. Now that, to me, is a very sculptural experience where you divest the object of its literal association. So his description of walking round was what he called his home or where he had lived. I, of, of course, I can't remember it completely accurately, but I was completely beguiled by the fact that he was describing in these extraordinary terms this building that was now on its roof. It had been turned completely head over heels. And the way he described it was to me as though he was walking around a sculpture. Now, perhaps this is very rather sort of exploitative of me to take this man's genuine grief and horror at the force of what this Hurricane Katrina had done to his home to then, you know, for me to then take it and convert that beautiful description he gave of meeting up with his home after such devastation and me to then take that and turn it into an artwork, I still feel very confused about how I have used devastation, both human-made devastation and naturally-made devastation as a resource for my work. But what was so utterly compelling about this man's description was that it so vividly gave me information for how I wanted to bring together a collection of components and try and make this upturned structure in the way that he had described. So Upturned House includes a number of materials that you've been playing with for a while, things like plywood and looks like shipping pallets, cement. So is the experiment taking that story and, to use a slightly hokey word, inspiration and matching it to to the materials that have interested you for a while? I think the experiment was to let go of the story so there wasn't a literal description behind the work, but to more take the fragments of information that came out of the story, the, the boards, the corners of the house, the its sense of balancing on its roof, the word balance, corners, broken, you know, I, I can't remember the literal list of words that he gave, but there was enough there to act as a trigger for me to say that whole idea with sculpture that you can turn it around, you can rotate it, you can, you know, hang it or lie it down or stand it up. Uh, you can do all these things with the objectness of sculpture and discover different ways of understanding the shape in front of you. I mean, it's, it's incredibly basic, but that I think was the experiment to bring these fragments of material information together and try to make something coherent that had the qualities of being upturned. And it, I'm guessing that, that this piece is also related to a part of your installation Brink at the Ludwig in Aachen a couple of years ago. Could you, I guess, quickly describe the relevant part of that installation and, and tell us kind of how you 
made that idea malleable enough to become something else? But the, the space in Aachen is, is actually quite extraordinary. It's these louvered windows, which are all glass lit. They're all glazed. It's an old umbrella factory, so it's all on one floor. But in the middle of this huge space, there is a drop down in the floor level by about a meter, about over a yard deep. So there's a deep sunken area of floor and then a raised area all, all around it. So it's, it's a dramatic space in a way that's all lit from above. And I wanted to kind of draw into this central space, almost as though it was a performative space, quite disparate objects that, that played, literally played off each other, however one interprets the word play, almost as though there was either a game or something theatrical going on. And what, one of the aspects of it was to actually enclose one section of the space around a column. And so I used the idea of a boarded up area, something that maybe again operated in a double way, very much as a collection of painted surfaces that would sort of parody painting in some way, or in a way, honor painting, and that they would take on a very formal architectural, slightly ad hoc ad architectural quality. And that space would then play off a very open fence structure that was on the opposite side of this sunken area. And then various other components would be around or, or placed in relationship to those two main pieces. It looks from the photographs of the installation in Aachen that you can look over and into kind of that middle area you're describing. And at the Carnegie, if you're tall enough, you can kind of do that. <laughs> and, and I'm tall, so I kind of could. And I wonder if if that's part of the idea that, that translated or, or, or traveled between the two pieces. Yeah, I think the idea of in, an interior space fascinates me. You can look into the interior space of upturned house by, instead of reaching up and over into it, you look under it. And I always have this thing about sculpture that we're trained to look at things at eye level. You know, the most ways in which art is displayed in museums takes on a kind of eye level format. But the thing about sculpture is that you can stalk it and prowl around it and peer into it and become very voyeuristic about how you investigate a sculptural form. And I sort of want to, I mean, this sounds very manipulative and very controlling, but I would love the audience to be choreographed into that role where they peep into or bend down and look under and their own relationship to the work becomes an integral part of what that work is that it's not just the upright figure going around it there may be someone 
bending on one side and someone very upright on the other side or somebody having to slightly duck under the 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 concrete block that sticks out from the build the um upturned house and and the same with the very big piece outside that the fact that it's almost like a in a way a small coppice or wood might be that you walk around it you know, and you see through it at times and those those things about how the work collaborates with the viewer in making the audience have some kind of active role in the looking experience rather than just a passive role so um i would hope that somebody might just bend down and look under the um, upturned house and see that interior, the, the rather raw, quite brutal kind of interior to upturned house. I, I jumped and looked over the top. <laughs> the outdoor piece is titled Tip. So at the Carnegie Upturned House is installed right next to Willem de Kooning's great, great, great woman six painting. Did you have any input into where the painting went or did you just kind of happily um, into where the sculpture went or was that a happy thing to discover? That was a curatorial decision by Daniel. And of course, I was absolutely thrilled because there is this extraordinary synchronicity between de Kooning's skirt-shaped squares of red and green, I think they are, and then the panels on Upturned House. So to me, it's a, a, a wonderful... Uh, reciprocity between the two works. There, there's a real conversation going on between the palette de Kooning uses and the palette. Yes, it, it's extraordinary. Yes, and I've, I've always absolutely loved de Kooning's work. But what I really love is being able to see one at a time, not a kind of great number of them all at once. I think, for me, his real intensity happens when you get one on quite a lot of space as there is in in the case of the Carnegie I mean I saw his retrospective huge retrospective at in New York which was absolutely fantastic but like a lot of retrospectives we have now going around the world they they are huge meals to digest and just that wonderful intensity of a one-to-one -one experience with just a single painting by such a great artist is is always for me extremely revealing and very special because you can focus i can focus and i can concentrate and you know i can give it time for listeners who haven't been to the carnegie yet upturned house is kind of in a corner the de Kooning is to the left of it. Really, the only two things that you see or can see are those two works. So you have that kind of experience with the two of them there together. It's a, it's an amazing install. I want to go back in time a little bit. So in a recent monograph on your work titled Objects for and Other Things that was published in the UK, the main essay of the book is by Mark Godfrey, and he places your 1976 sculpture, Shed Mesh, I hope I'm saying that right, in the context of then-concurrent American developments in sculpture, in the context of artists such as Richard Serra, with whom you engage at the Carnegie, Saul Witt, Tony Smith, so on. 
so I'm wondering how how much back then you were aware of what was happening in America and how much you consciously chose to engage with American sculptors rather than, you know, a very particular British tradition that was kind of, I don't know, beginning to peter out about. Yes, them. yes. And that's a very significant way of describing it. I think for my generation, maybe the the tremendous history of craft meeting the figure, meeting landscape, as we know, is so strong in Henry Moore's work and is, I think, inherent to a certain kind of Britishness. I think, for me, there was something about making that was not being satisfied by the moral legacy of that, those traditions. I'm much more tolerant of them now. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't have to overthrow them in the same way you, you, you did, you know, at the beginning of a career, right? I mean, at the beginning of a yes, career, I artists mean, have rather, different... I mean, I rather sort of relish and love returning to the works, the European works of the 40s and 50s now. I see in its kind of post-war monstrosity-ness, something very relevant and very, very powerful now. But at the time it seemed to be dogged with the necessity to be very, very good at doing these, what are in incredible sculptural processes, but sometimes good as in a way, a craft-based way. And what I suppose I started to be hugely attracted to was, say, with Arte Povera coming out of Italy, was the idea of a material as a, a gestural, performative, or the, the qualities of materials possessing gesture and performative qualities that were things in themselves and were ends in themselves, like um, Robert Morris's felt works, or, you know, Alan Sarratt, then, you know, the sort of crushed mesh pieces, you know, of course, the discovery of Eva Hesser, which came quite late. I mean, the first works I saw of her were the very brightly colored works from the time she stayed in Germany. And then by about 71, which, I, you know, was very near the time she had died, I began to see only in photographic form the full range of her very, very fragile and perfectly poised works with, with latex, muslin, and fiberglass and resin. And it was as though a whole world had opened up that that sense of incredible touch, but touch that holds such a brief moment of time in it, you know, rather than the laborious state of touch that maybe late Henry Moores have, where you feel every inch is labored over, <laughs> there would be with a, a Hesse, this, this sense of a moment caught in time. And, and there was the evidence of it in these, in these, hanging, in these hanging works or the, or the fragile tubular works that, that something had only just come into existence. It wasn't to do with, for me, it wasn't to do with ephemerality. It was actually the opposite. It was to do with giving incredible permanence to something that was utterly fleeting. And that, 
that seemed like Robert uh, Morris's steam pieces, which have the same extraordinary qualities for me as well, where something absolutely permanent and held in its own time is is not one through extensive labor which wears its labor very heavily but almost as though you're witnessing something that is is there forever but you don't quite know where it's come from and i thought that was just extraordinary in in so many american artists work of that time of course that was a time when american sculpture was overwhelmingly dominated by men a couple of exceptions ava hess who you mentioned and ann truitt who who brought color into a medium that had become colorless really at that point in, in American sculpture yes. history. But so so since Eva then... Hepper, there was Linda Benglis, there was Judy Pfaff, there was the wonderful Lee Bontecou, there was Louise Nevelson, Louise Bourgeois. I mean... But he, Some of whom showed more in Europe than they did at the United States at that point. Yes, Louise Nevelson, who I really loved her work very, very early on. And just this whole idea of objects that could be held in the hand that you then made these quite enormous assemblages with. That was a tremendous experience for me as well, a, a learning experience, you know, that largeness was could often be acquired through incredible intimacy with something that you could hold in your hand. And then through an accumulative process, you, you, you get this other size emerging. So since the mid-1970s, a lot of the work you made then has been discussed by, by critics as being particularly gendered, as, as, as being you know, kind of a, a presentation of, of, of a particularly non-male point of view. And I wonder if that was something you consciously thought about or... or no. <laughs> or not. No, just no, not. I mean, I, I find it very interesting and very paradoxical, this, because I think I probably make work in quite, if there is a sort of gendered way of making, I would say I make work in a masculine way, i.e. I'm quite brutal with material. Certainly now, but as much I then? I think so. There was a lot of ripping, tearing pushing, cutting, breaking. Is that is that the mes- definition of being masculine? <laughs> it's certainly, you know, uh, you know, aggressive verbs, which, you know, you can't talk about aggressive verbs in sculpture in the 60s and 70s without thinking of Richard Serra, and you can't think of Richard Serra without thinking of, yeah, well, you know. Yeah, so. no, but I think it is, it's a, it's a discussion that isn't completely resolved because, you know, I think the, female brutality would be is highly stigmatized in a way that's slightly different from male brutality but it's there you know both genders have it and i think when it's applied to artwork whether it's a a man or a woman a male or a female artist doing it it is it is a subject. It's a subject inherent to the work. You know? And I've often seen my work as being very without subject, but the actions that are 
inherent to how I make are a kind of subject, if that makes any sense. And I think that that is often very much about, probably is very much about a female not using, in my case, I'm not using my gender as a subject, but I'm using a sense of motivation and drive to do something with the materials in front of me that is extremely active on those materials and therefore it inevitably leads to something that has those kind of masculine attributes. I think the other, the other side of it, which is the sort of caressing of materials with paint or dipping them or them being laid in layers, you know, again, I would ask, is that just the prerogative of, a, of the, the feminine? I don't know. You know, there are enough. It, it's so, it's such an unresolved discussion and one that is endlessly fascinating. My guest is Philida Barlow. We'll be right back after a break. Now back to my conversation with Philida Barlow. You've talked about using paint as, as someone might use plaster or clay, which is such a great idea. I think if I were an art student, that would, that would probably determine my next 20 years. And I, and I love it as an idea. Could you give us one or two of, of your favorite examples in your oeuvre of how you use paint as, 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 as you might have used plaster or clay? Certainly with some early work, or oh, they weren't early works, I was 40 at the time in the 80s, where I was using paint as a kind of means by which I could join paper and cloth and upholstery foam together. So the paint was applied very, very thickly and then squeezed into these materials. And also in the Arkham piece, and I'll be doing a similar piece for the Norton I've taken fabric and I've soaked it in paint and then it, I've sort of squeezed it into shapes and rolled it up so that it, it takes on quite a lot of shape-like qualities because of that. And these works with these painted canvases and painted calico, it is, are often on the floor as floor works and have other works embedded in them. And then there was a work I did that was called Depot that was in 1995, where I joined wood together with a lot of paint. And oddly enough, in the Carnegie work outside, embedding the colored ribbons in the cement I saw the cement and the colored ribbons almost as a sort of painterly gesture as much as a a sort of formal or shape-like gesture. Just thinking about the clay thing and the paint. I mean, in, in a way, I would go so far as to say the way the paint is applied, even on upturned house with the colored panels, is actually more like smearing a bland surface of the wood. It, it's more like smearing it with a deposit to, in a way, encrust that whole 
shape of the, the, the sort of architectural shape with this, with, a, with an encrusting of something, color in that case. So the, I think paint is always a kind of modeling material of some sort, even in its most simple form as with, as with those panels in Upturned House. Yeah, on Upturned House, the, the way the paint is there kind of reminds me of early Cezanne portraits, you know, where he, you know, almost spackles paint onto faces, you know. You know, the the other, I guess, kind of foundational principle or practice that I've read you talk about a lot, both in terms of your own work and, and what you communicate to students and, and even to your own assistants now, is the idea of speed. And, and, and you talked a little bit about it a moment ago as, as maybe having something to do with Ava Hess. And I guess, could you quickly summarize why speed is important to you, but maybe more importantly, what does it get into the work that, that you want people to see or feel or, or, or have in the work? I think, do you mean the sense, the tempo of making something? Yes, and that you've kind of, as I understand it, have told your assistants to, to take one pass at something when they do it. Do it quickly, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. do it, and then on very, to the next. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a conflicted role that I have where I make small sculptures, which are, are very much made by me, and they're, in a way, often tryouts or tests not necessarily literally for the bigger works, but they constantly stir things up. And the, they're made very quickly, and I like to retain that sense that maybe something's not completely finished or is in a state of flux. That That is something that is a very alive part of making sculpture for me. So when it comes to transferring that way of making to these much larger works, it's, it's fraught with, with the difficulty of how to make that experience of the tempo at which something is produced be an experience in its own right for the person who's doing it, which might usually not be me. So it's how then I give that direction almost as a a builder would be given directions as to how to treat a certain surface, you know, and it's very, to keep that direction as pragmatic as possible, but there's only one swipe of the hand with the cement or the scrim, which is, I think you call burlap in the States, is just dipped in very quickly, pulled out of the bucket and just placed on the frame with one gesture. So these are very, very simple directions where I hope the assistant who's doing that can retain the material's immediacy and it not become a copied mannerism of mine. I'm also really interested in your Object 4 series, which I don't think there's, I, I don't think one has ever been installed in the U.S., but correct me if I'm wrong. It's, it's, it's a series that goes back to the mid, that you made or started in the mid-1990s. The early 1990s, in about 92, I began them. Could you describe what exactly the series is, I guess, to start our conversation about? Yes, from about... 
1990 till about 95, maybe even earlier than 1990, I was struggling with the work and with finding venues for the work to be shown. And it wasn't a huge priority because I think the exhibition culture is far more ferocious now. So having sort of being under the radar wasn't a particular problem for me, but it was a problem in terms of thinking about what the destination for artworks might be and could be. And was it, what happened to artworks that were bought? Where did they end up? Did they end up on people's pianos or on their televisions or their tables? You know? And what about the artwork that was inappropriate to such a destination? And that began to fascinate me just as an idea, you know. So the first thing I did was take works out and just place them on the street and on street furniture. And just out of curiosity as well as a sort of subplot to see how long they were there. And some of them actually lasted about eight or nine years because of where they were, they were placed in situations where they were just immediately absorbed into the urban environment, like the way someone might chuck an old pair of shoes up and it just lands, you know, on a the edge of a building or something. <laughs> yeah, and let me just fill this in a little bit for listeners. So sometimes you would put things on top of a of, of maybe like a stoplight control yes, box exactly. or between lampposts or I mean just really you know on top of a mailbox or something. I mean just kinds of Yes, very very kind of casual places that appealed really because they almost performed as a kind of plinth in a way as much as anything else. So there was a there was a bit of humour in it, you know, that the that the, the the gallery could be taken to the most mundane situation possible, and it would be in a way a very comfortable location for something that would then go unnoticed, and it could the two things could inhabit you know, the the appropriated plinth, so to speak. In the domestic context, that plinth could be a TV on top of the TV or on top of a desk or just out in the middle of, of the living room. You know, object for the sitting room is a blue tarp bound by a rubber hose just in the middle of the room. Yes, yes, exactly. Because <laughs> because the in as an idea, the artwork had been purchased and then suddenly there would be nowhere for it to go other than it to occupy very inconveniently that that space and i i think maybe there was a uh, you know i find i do perhaps find it quite humorous as to you know where what the artwork space is in our time you know in our 21st century time and there are collectors who have amazing spaces for artworks but there are also homes you know, where the artworks are almost unnoticed because they're fulfilling some other kind of role. Role. So I think there's a sort of strange, I would call it almost an anthropological issue rather than an art issue as to where art ends up. And I think that's ongoingly fascinating, you know, where the big Rothko has 
pride of place in some amazing home somewhere <laughs> or the or the sort of reproduction of a van gogh is sort of practically unnoticed in somebody's kitchen <laughs> and and i think there is a an extraordinary archival you know an archive of where these artworks where and what they are inhabiting and what status they have that which seems to me a, a wonderful kind of archaeology and an anthropology at the same time and maybe a sort of sociology as well you know that is distinct from the art world from which these things have emerged in the first place so the citing of these pieces was kind of a core principle it, it seems to, there are two things that are present in the object fours that I wanted to ask you about. And the first one is either their relationship to Franz Vest's work or then, or maybe Franz Vest's work's relationship to oh, these no, pieces. I and I, I wonder... I think it would be, I, I, Franz Vest wouldn't have known about my work, but I certainly knew about his work. You're absolutely right, yes. So are these pieces in in some way a specific attempt to to engage with him or are they no no was I, was, was that just part of the I soup? think it was in a way a strange meeting of similar concerns you know, except, yes i think right right down to the some of the colors yes i know that was absolutely not lifted from franz west i mean i think when i first saw his work which was probably surprisingly late it was a a shock and of course those kind of creative meetings are they present a lot of you know they they present a lot of concerns that are quite surprising one is that there's somebody doing something a little bit like I'm doing but much better or whatever the thoughts are aroused this weird egocentric thing that artists have a sort of competitive spirit but also a sense well i'm going to slightly divert or or i'm going to take this on or i'm i'm going to absorb this but really i'm not going to travel down that same road i've got to find a parallel road and i'm not saying it was that close um uh, a coincidence between his and my work, but there was a profound effect that he, seeing his work, had. And even in the Carnegie, I came across a fabulous piece that was... Oh, fabulous one. I mean, that's such you a good know, one. You know the one there. <laughs> oh, I do. We'll have, we'll have an image of it up on the website. Yeah, it's a great vest. It, it, it's also interesting to me that he got to where, where he got through Central European modernism and through a specific engage with Austrian art, and you got to where you got through, you know, through through a very different engagement. And yet, in this period, in the mid to late nineties, you're kind of walking down the same street. Yes, it, it's it, it's strange because I think just talking in a very practical way, there's a way of using very traditional processes, like how you build an armature very quickly and very simply out of same cheap wood and scrim burlap and plaster that is almost generic and a collection of artists from around the world could all 
all be making a start with trying to get a shape to exist in front of them. They might all begin in that way. And there would be, at a certain point, a remarkable shared language between the way they're making things. And I think it's then the point at which you arrest that process of making with those kinds of materials that can make there be similarities in the ways in the works are emerging. I mean, Franz West's works, the ones where you sort of enter them or you're invited to enter them, the plaster is left in this very rich, half-finished state. You know? And I think you look at Madado Rosso or even Rodin's sort of ways in which he left bits of mold on, on his figures. There's a, there's, a long, there's a long history of artists being fascinated in that aliveness of materials that have a liquid state and then solidify, that, that invites a shared language, you know, but between those artists. One of the artistic moves that's at the heart of the Object 4 series and that you've kind of used ever since is the idea, if you will, of taking a cylinder or something round and binding it, binding a cylinder with rope or with tape or or with a rope and tape and paint. And I wonder where that move comes from, why it's something you like, if you will, and why you keep going back to it over and over again. I think, I think the... There are certain, the triangle, I love the triangle as a shape, not necessarily the equilateral triangle, but a, a triangle that seems to either be able to be poised on its apex in some way and be very unbalanced, <laughs> or it's sitting very solidly on, its, on, on one of its sides. And I think in contrast to that, a circular form is potentially a voluptuous form and it's, it doesn't have a resting point very so easily as a triangular form and trying to make that that circular form also lends itself to both a sort of horizontality and to an uprightness but the, the roundness is an all all round roundness and I think that's my attraction to it. I like the way a cylindrical form can be laid horizontally and then placed on top of something, maybe quite high up. I like the way it can actually lie on the floor and seem almost mobile at that point. So the, the characteristics of cylindrical forms have both incredible stillness about them when they're caught or trapped or held, but also have that potential that they've just arrived there, they've rolled there, or they've had, had movement in them, but it's been arrested. And then in their, their sort of upright form, they're, they're sort of asleep, they're dormant. It's a dormant shape for me. So until the last year or year and a half or so, you had, had been barely seen in the United States. There were a couple of shows in Dallas. 
and that's you know kind of about it. And your early work, I mean, going 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 back a couple of decades, was typically impermanent. It was it was made, it was dissembled, it was recycled into something else, and so on. And I wonder if there are any of those early pieces that you particularly wish American audiences could see, or that you think would be useful for American audiences to to have the opportunity to see, to have a grounding for for what came next. Okay, let, let's. Uh, I'll just try and approach this in a slightly different way. Of course, there is a loss. There's definitely a, a sense of loss with the work, but not in a not in a tragic sense. I would say, you know, when you go and hear a great performance or a wonderful performance that really moves you, I'm often perplexed by what is it that you actually go away with because the thing itself has disappeared. And I think there's been something about making sculpture that's been a bit like that, you know, that the event itself, whether it was great or not doesn't matter <laughs> in that once it's done certainly from my point of view as the artist some something has gone and I've always felt that about making things the, the sort of build up the making the whole practicalities of making are one part of it but the main part of it is the installing of it when the there is a marriage between the space and all the actions that have to be done to get this thing installed. And there is a great sense of performance in doing that. And then quite honestly, I'm extremely relieved to walk away from it. And <laughs> it, the, something has, has gone at that point. But, you know, thinking back on the work and thinking back on all the works that that no longer e exist and maybe very much recalling them now for some reason. I'm having to use memory a lot as a resource about those works. I can't, I wouldn't know where to begin with, with which ones are the most important because maybe it's like a whole experience, you know, and now there's a narrative. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yes, yeah. So now that works are being kept, it's a very, very strange experience because some of the works don't keep that well and they take up huge amounts of storage spaces. So there is, there is an issue about whether some works are better thought of as things that can be remade and then remade again. So... It's, it's an interesting crossroads at the moment as to what the nature is of some of these very, very big installations, you know, what their longevity is. And finally, your son, Eddie Peak, one of, one of your five children. He just um, moved in the room and out of the room again, having just returned from Sao Paulo. Oh, Sao Paulo. Well, He's one of your five kids, one of five you've had with your husband, um, the artist Fabian Peake. And Eddie, is, as I understand it, went to the RA That's schools? It. Yes, yes. So his mother's an artist, his father's an artist. So after which artist parent does does his work most take? Well, he very, he's very clear about that, but it's neither. 
I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good answer for him. I think it's very interesting. <laughs> it's a lot to you live know, up we've to. got another daughter who's a performance artist and a daughter who's a writer and a son who's an illustrator. So we're we're surrounded, and I think for them. I don't know whether being the children of artists is such a great thing. I mean, my husband and I, you know, we've had years of really tough financial times, you know, and, <laughs> and this isn't this isn't a sob story or anything, but I think it's it it's it's difficult for children of artists, you know, and I think Eddie was always extremely clear that he wanted to be able to engage with the exhibition side of art really passionately and and quite early on. And he's been fortunate enough to achieve that. And I think he sees that as very different from his parents' route. And I I'm glad of that, you know, because I think when Fabian and I left art school in the 60s, the the just the idea of being able to call oneself an artist and have a studio was such felt like a triumph in itself and to make work in that studio was the proof that you were an artist you didn't the idea of then having an exhibition wasn't the main imperative you know well the, uh, maybe a slightly different political statement almost in being an artist in the 60s than there is today when with with today's luxury driven art market yes i i mean i feel for the young artists today i think it is incredibly tough we could get art school teaching jobs quite easily and they paid well so we could then have the luxury of our work being this this highly significant thing but you didn't need to prove yourself you didn't need to prove that you were an artist it was enough that you were making the stuff you know and people would come to one studio and all that kind of thing it wasn't about the exhibition but i think it is now the importance of the verbs as we were talking about earlier yes yes the, uh, make not being necessarily thing. always a good thing but i certainly think in the 60s that kind of existence where there was so much going on and it was all bubbling away a lot of it didn't take the form of white cube exhibitions you know it's quite it was sort of quite out on the streets well philida barlow it's been wonderfully exciting to talk to you and thanks so much for coming on the program well, thank you it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much indeed <laughs> On view through July 16th, 2023, at the Getty Center, the bold new exhibition Barbara T. Smith, The Way to Be, explores concepts that strike at the core of human nature, including sexuality, technology, and death. Since the 1960s, Smith has been at the forefront of artistic movements in California. Her work has taken various forms, including painting, drawing, installation, video, performance, and artists' books, and often involves her own body as a vehicle for her art. This autobiographical exhibition is Smith's first major museum show and explores the artist's first 50 years, which were marked by dramatic upheavals in her personal life, as well as the development of her most pioneering works, including her Xerox art and radical early performances. 
Getty also published Smith's memoir to accompany the show, and the exhibition includes an audio tour narrated by the artist. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. On view now at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, Spirit in the Land, a contemporary art exhibition that examines today's urgent ecological concerns from a cultural perspective. Spirit in the Land demonstrates how intricately our identities and natural environments are intertwined. Through their artwork, 30 artists show us how rooted in the earth our most cherished cultural traditions are, how our relationship to land and water shapes us as individuals and communities. The works reflect the restorative potential of our connection to nature and exemplify how essential both biodiversity and cultural diversity are to our survival. Artists in the exhibition include Wangeshi Mutu, Radcliffe Bailey, Hugh Locke, Stacey Lynn Waddell, and Sheldon Scott. On view through July 9th. Learn more at nasher.duke.edu. As the Princeton University Art Museum constructs a new building, set to open in 2024, more than 100 works of American art from its collection are traveling the country in the exhibition Object Lessons in American Art, on view at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia through May 14th. Spanning the 18th century to the present, Object Lessons features works of Euro-American, African-American, and Native American art, and illustrates how fresh investigations and contemporary perspectives can inform and enrich its meaning. With these objects, the exhibition asks fundamental questions about artistic significance and how meaning changes across time, place, and context. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about the exhibition, or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. Philippa Barlow, <laughs> welcome back to the Modern Art Notes Thank podcast. You. Thank you. I'd like to start with one of the wildly impressive experiences in, in, in Dallas and in art at the moment is kind of turning the corner from the sidewalk into the Nasher and being struck by this, by the monumentality of what you've done in that main middle bay. And so when you did your show at the Tate Britain dock, um, Adrian Searle, the British critic, wrote that what on a smaller scale can seem clunky becomes magnificently theatrical here. And turning from the sidewalk into the museum here, I think, has that, that same experience. So is it easier for you to go big and dramatic like that or, or to work small? They're very different experiences. Working big involves the assistants who were here working with me during the last two weeks. So it has a collaborative element about it. And the actual production of the work is, is performative and theatrical. But what makes a huge difference, it's not that it's, it's not a competition of which is easier. It's more a different experience. But even with the bigger works, the sections never really get much bigger than my own dimensions. It's only when they start to accumulate do they take on that kind of size. So I never think of myself as necessarily somebody who works big. <laughs> the bigness is part of an adventure to explore space. It's almost a tool, a piece of equipment that enables me to reach up into the areas of the space that aren't usually occupied by art. And so to me, it's very much 
at that moment in the studio, my own curiosity. I always think of that quote from mountaineers, and I can't even, I could hardly walk out the stairs without getting vertigo. So why <laughs> I would um, have this thing about mountaineers, I don't know, but, but it's that thing about being asked, why do they climb these mountains? And the answer is because it's there. And I think I have that same relationship with art spaces. You know, the spaces are there in all their manifestations. There's high up, there's low down, there's width, there's going down. And especially here, the discoveries about this space I made whilst installing the work was absolutely phenomenal and endlessly surprising. And I hadn't completely appreciated that when I did the site visit. So for the people at home who haven't seen the piece yet, two-thirds of the show comes within six inches of the ceiling. Lots of pieces get, get all the way up there. Just to give a, a quick bit of, bit of background, you kind of respond to sight in, in, in when you plan an installation such as mm. this. Can you kind of walk us through how you engage with a building and think of putting together you know, five, six, ten pieces for a space the way you did here? Well, I think the show began to be made hard on the heels of making the Tate show. So there was a sort of run on about that way of exploring a very, very beautifully built art space. You know, the Tate Devine galleries are a series of different marbles and granites that rise up to this vaulted ceiling with a light going running the whole length. So it's, it's, it's a fantastic space to take on sculpturally. And it was, in a way, this reciprocated it very much. Every surface is superb, you know, and the way the light does enter this building is extraordinary because the materials are natural materials and also the walls are real walls. They're not fabricated walls that divide up the space as one might see in many white cube spaces. So it's the argument of what to do is very much taking on the fabric of the space and the dimensions of the space. And the more difficult issue was the fact that there Upstairs, it's two parallel spaces, which is actually quite uncomfortable for a way of how an audience might negotiate those spaces. So you're coming in and you're heading straight down one, and then you can take a right and you look right and left at the other. So it, it's quite controlling of how you experience a space, which actually is quite similar to to the Tate, but I wanted to try and disrupt that as much as possible by making the objects I use primarily take an audience, initially myself, I suppose, in how I related to the space, take me on that adventure of being able to look up, look through, look across, look backwards and forwards, and to then begin to think of a series of contrasting objects that would both welcome and then rebuff and then draw you on and then take you back again through all a series of different media, colors, forms, 
that opened and shut or hung or made you look up and into and beyond. So the building was very much perhaps a kind of subject of the work initially. And definitely the narrative was to go to be greeted by these, these balancing crates that would in some ways remain in a state of limbo. Then I, my idea in the studio was that they would be rather provisional and as they were made under some kind of duress, they were made with rather a short window of making time, that that urgency of making would still be retained within them. So the sort of naked underneaths of them would be left like that. And the way that they're sort of held together would be very exposed. In, in my view, the sort of half-made object or the remains of things that aren't necessarily completely finished, I have a fascination for that. And just, just to comment on that, it always seems to me extraordinary that our sort of lineage of Western art is very dependent on broken fragments of things for which we have no problem. You know, we look at torsos that don't have limbs, you know, that come from Hellenic times, you know, that are, what, six, seven thousand years old. Found in and ground, they, found in water, wherever, Yes, yeah. yeah, they're iconic. This is, this is great, you know, and Western art runs out of that, that greatness. And there doesn't seem to be an issue that the arms are missing and the legs are missing, you know, so the fragment and the half finished has for me, as I think it does for everybody, a certain beauty, you know, it's sublime. I'm not comparing my art to <laughs> <laughs> great Greek art. <laughs> well, before we're done with, with, with the building, so the, the National, I'm sorry, the Tate in, in, in London is a John Russell Pope and W.H. Romain Walker building. This, of course, is, is a Renzo Piano. To mm. me, it seems like it would be kind of a jarring difference going from kind of those long, narrow, tall hallways in, in, a, in a neoclassical building to really different spaces here. Is it? No, that's what I, I found mm. fascinating, was that there was reciprocity between the two. But not the not oppositionally, but in... Yes, yeah. in this, the, the, the length being quite problematic. Maybe sculpture can very easily become pictorial when there is one entrance point and, yeah. and that's it. This, that certainly isn't the case here, but the length means that you're stacking things up against each other so that they start to obliterate each other. And therefore, it seemed to me important in the first instance to try and go high so that the, the act of looking up was very much part of the experience and then being able to see beyond the first, the impact of the first objects. In the studio, it's very, very difficult to consider the audience. But the minute the work comes into the space, it, it does become theatrical and performative. The audience becomes the absolute key part of how the work begins to get put together and assembled. 
And that's when I hope the generosity begins. <laughs> I think there's a meanness of spirit in the studio where the making is so intense that it's a, a kind of selfish, self-obsessed activity at that point. But then it has to evolve into something very different. So there are two incredibly different stages. And to go back to your first question, the small works are completely different. They happen in a very private way. They happen quickly. They get abandoned. They get thrown away. They go through all kinds of cycles of making, which is just a relationship between me and those objects. You mentioned looking up, and many of the pieces here encourage us to look up. When you come into the entrance gallery, you look up into the crates. Mm. I, I don't want to give a piece away, but when you, when you get to Stockade, which is the big kind of not quite square piece on the garden side in the second gallery, there is a point at which, as you circumnavigate it, it is hinted to the potential viewer that the viewer should find a way to look up, mm. if you will. With, with Hanging Monument, the, the, the piece of the hanging kind of mm. pipe-like thing, you are encouraged to look up at the armature and to see mm. how that is. So when and why did the act of making the viewer look up become interesting or important? I think it's always been there, either in a latent form, rarely a question that emerged very early on, which is, where does art end up? I know it doesn't seem to be answering your question. You know, do you as in my case, enjoy it, or as I was doing in the 80s and 90s, just putting it on the roof of our then car, taking it somewhere and just putting it on a street corner <laughs> and, and abandoning <laughs> these things. And finally, after a few years of doing that, one night at three o'clock in the morning, I took them all to Blackfriars Bridge and chucked them in the Thames. And <laughs> such is the way of artists, you know. <laughs> and it was one of the most liberating things I've done. <laughs> but I think that question of what is the destination for art? Is it someone's home? Is it a gallery? Is it a museum? Do you, as an artist who hasn't got collectors or galleries or museums, do you take that initiative yourself? Yes, of course you do. You go and find places. And maybe I began to think of, as I did when I was putting these, place, these objects around London in obscure places, I would sometimes put them high up, you know, above abandoned houses, doorways, or in strange nooks and crannies that were slightly out of reach. And it, it began to fascinate me, that idea that certainly a lot of the world is about looking up, looking into trees, looking at the sky, and why does art conform to this sort of eye-level tide line, if you know what I mean? No, I do. <laughs> and sculpture, of all things, seems to be able to invite the possibility both of defying gravity or using gravity as a material in its own right in trying to fight it, like the wonderful Ellsworth Kelly piece, which has the most amazing piece of fixing under the floorboard. So there's a sort of illusionistic apparatus going on there. I should, I but, should mention that the permanent collection gallery here was uh, almost entirely selected by Philida. So a lot of my enjoyment then began to be about placing. 
and almost like hiding, placing as a form of hiding. And where would that be? And when I went round London to collect the remains of the objects I dotted around, I think I've got four or five. They now inhabit a space on the top of a, a cupboard in my house, you know, and they've, they're thick with dust. And <laughs> such is my skill as a homemaker. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think this, this, the way we also, in, in terms of a, a domestic, you know, we place things all over the place and it goes questioned. It's what we do as human beings, you know, we, we store all those unanswered correspondence between the bread bin and the wall, or I do, I don't know, <laughs> you know, there are these clusters of extraordinary everyday life deposited in extraordinary corners, you know, and I think sculpture isn't just about inhabiting a comfortable space. It's a very awkward, difficult art form, and I think it, it can play with that. You know, another way a lot of the pieces here play with space is they encourage us to look through them, to, 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 to see what's in the middle mm. or um, on the other side. And, and I, I, I want to talk about a couple of those, those pieces. Mm. First, maybe the, the large boulder-like pieces, which have hunks of wood and steel going through them. Yeah. And in a couple parts have these square portal-like openings with lots of gunk and goo in there. Mm. And it's... They're fun to, to walk around and look into, mm. and there, you know, there, there is this temptation to stick your hand in there and see mm. what might happen. And I mean, you know, are they alive? <laughs> and and so, I, you know, when I think of of sculpture that has holes in it, I think yes. of of uh, two Brits, Hepworth and Moore, absolutely, and yes. I think of an American, Jackie Windsor. And I wonder if those those holes or portals into those pieces how much it has to do with each of those three. Absolutely, totally. The hole in the sculpture, I think, is an extraordinary invention about making something very solid and obstructive have the other world on the other side visible and then going round and seeing the world that you've just been in revealed again. So it's doing many things that argue with that physical state. It's in a way trying to defy it and puncture it. And I think it's an actual willful act on the part of artists to try and do that. Even painters, if uh, just looking at the, in the Rachowski collection yesterday, the fantastic Fontana there, the yellow Fontana with the bullet holes or whatever they are he used to shoot through, that, that I think artists do have a sort of destructive, violent side to them where the act of making isn't a caress always. It's actually quite brutal. Our acts of making are, you know, often as the noise this last two weeks has proved, the drills and the cutting of the steel and everything, it's the actions themselves are quite murderous, you know. But then they're also 
there are very gentle actions as well. But the whole in sculpture is, is I think, a combination of those. It's, it's a loving act to, in a way, enable something to breathe, to allow oxygen, air to flow through the whole thing. It's also the act of trying to escape, you know, burst through and explode out the other side. And I'm sort of absolutely intrigued by all those 20th century tropes, if you like, of trying to make sculpture have different forms of behavior in spite of the rigidity of the materials that were chosen. And you see that right across the board in, in many different ways. It's like the collapsed object, which in a way was one of the, the great things of Arte Povera, you know. Or, for instance, Robert Morris's felt pieces or his steam pieces, you know. Things that usually have a, a way of not being fixed permanently, you know. So that being able to absorb that into sculpture in its actual state of feltness or steamness or string or all the extraordinary materials the Arte Povera artists use, I think in a way were a kind of equivalent to the whole. It's dis disturbing or destabilizing the status quo of, of an object that might have a certain fixedness about it. Mm but refuses to be that. When, when we talked a couple years ago, you said that early in your career, you and kind of an entire generation of British sculptors were done with Henry Moore, done with Barbara <laughs> Hepworth. I mean, it was, you know, it had been done. It was I'm embarrassed the end about of what I said about he and, Barbara Hepworth at that time. <laughs> well, but you, but you also said that you, you know, a, a couple of years ago, we're, we're, we're kind of going back to them a little bit and oh, finding definitely. things. Yes, and, and yes. I, yes. I did not ask at the time and wish I had and can now. What in their work was it that you found useful to go back to? The invented form. I think at the time in the early 60s, the British obsession with landscape and craft and then the sort of hybrid marriage of those things becoming very figurative, as, as in the case of Henry Moore, was like a sort of stifling mantra, you know, mm. things that the bullying within sculpture departments of how you had to make and how you had to learn how to make. And in the Chelsea School of Art, there was a notice on the welding shop, no women allowed. And I... <laughs> I think, you know, in that background, someone somewhere along the line is going to get very, very angry indeed. <laughs> I was certainly that person. And I think uh, the, combined with the fact that all these things I was meant to learn, the welding, the woodwork, and I was just incredibly bad at. I just couldn't get to grips with it. So it became clay. And clay also performed in all sorts of quite amazing ways. It could be w almost like paint. You know, there was a, you could swipe it and whack it with wood. You could do all sorts of things with it. And then if you began to combine it with an armature that could be made in the most rough and expedient way, it completely overrid overrode the craft obsession 
which I felt had sort of dominated British, I felt dominated British art. Mm. You know, the learning how to do something, and once you'd learned how to do it, you were ticked off, you were, you know, you got your tick and that was it. And I just felt there must be other ways of approaching this. And there were some teachers at that time who were absolutely on the same page as that. But now, looking back at it, I think, especially with Barbara Hepworth, there's about to be a massive retrospective of her work, the, the, the sheer stunning invention of her forms are uh, something that I think has left sculptural language in a way. It's been replaced by an obsession, an ongoing obsession with the ready-made, the found object and the appropriated object. Although I think, you know, that is clearly Duchamp's legacy and I have fantastic respect for Duchamp. I also think the way he's been academicized, you know, he's become the intellectual high ground for certainly within art institutions. I think that's also combined with a kind of ignorance of knowing more about what he felt about making. If you read his essay, The Creative Act, it's just all about transformation of materials and being able to change things, you know, transform things from one state into another state. And that I think he says, you know, what's the point of an idea? And I think that's absolutely fantastic because I think ideas, I'm not sure I've ever had an idea in my life, actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very reassuring to find that, you know, my arch enemy, Duchamp, <laughs> felt the same. <laughs> yeah, it's hard for an artist to survive into a fifth generation, which is, I guess, probably what we're approaching with kind of post-Duchampian yes, sorts. Yeah. <laughs> One of the other characteristics of a lot of the work here, mm. I mean, when, when you look at a, at a Henry Moore, you can tell it's heavy, because it's heavy. But with a lot of uh, your work, here, but also in other of your work, it's impossible to tell whether it's heavy or not. Mm. And I, how intentional is that? Very. I mean, I love the. I think the bronze cast is the most magnificent piece of fakery. You know, the fact that it's... What, what the process is doing is taking a print off a surface. And then that printed surface is, what, a maximum... A centimeter thick, and inside is this void. Big void. And yet, it's claiming this huge solidity. And I think that act of deceit is absolutely fantastic. And so, in a way, I'm playing with the same kinds of deceits that sometimes things look like cement, but they're more likely to be paint, and they build up a tremendous weight not necessarily through the inherent quality of the original material, which might be something like polystyrene, but they build that weight through what I add on to them in terms of the surface, which can be aspiring to look like other kinds of building materials like cement or stone or those kinds of very, very solid and heavy materials. So, so you don't want the work to look heavy or to look light. You want it to look like it could be either. Yes, I think I want that an ambiguity, but I'm very aware that there is a sort of 
act of fakery, which I see as theatre, in what that process is doing. I'm fascinated mm. by this, these phrases, and those of you in the theatre, and I know there's an expert somewhere here <laughs> who ran the Dallas Opera House. I can see him there. <laughs> I, that phrase, which is suspension of belief and suspension of disbelief, I don't quite understand what the difference is between those two statements. I know they are different, but I think sculpture employs the same kind of tactics of trying to make you believe in something that isn't actually true in the literal sense. You know, a bronze is hollow, it's not a solid thing, it's playing with being that, you right. know. I mean, stone is probably one of the most authentic materials there is in sculpture and wood in the, in the way maybe Brancusi used it. So speaking of theatricality, I mentioned <coughs> Stockade earlier, which is actually called Untitled Stockade 2015 for the purposes of shorthand. There is this incredible theatrical moment as you walk around the piece. And then, as I mentioned earlier, you're encouraged to look up and there is this reveal. What about activating the interior of something, physically, visually, whatever the word is, what about activating the interior appealed to you? Because it's playing with that state of ambiguity and making it very, very clear that everything that is seen is actually incredibly simply built. There is no trickery. What, what you see is what you get at that moment when you go through the back and look in. And there's a fascination, from my point of view, of a sort of front of house display and then a, a sort of front stage display and a backstage yeah. acknowledgement. And backstage, it's all pulleys and weights and gantries and everything that's supporting this moment of pretense at the front that's got to be believed. And I think sculpturally, that for me becomes intriguing. So being able to see the interior and just see that it's got a very similar structure holding it all in place as the boxes, the crates in the other gallery makes it in a way have its own dramatic content. You know, the front is all drama and show and the back becomes in a way much more self-aware in some ways of its own physicality. And the fact that it's actually cantilevered, it's, it's balanced, then makes all those struts and cross braces absolutely essential to how it's perched on that slalom of black pallets. It's in a way an object on a base, on a plinth, which is another sort of sculptural trope. It's just a very re-manipulated one. In, in that sense, I think the way I work and the way I think sculpturally is incredibly traditional. You know, it's about taking a lot of those very, very ancient sculptural concerns, but reconfiguring them so they're heavily disguised and in a way become something else. So you've been playing with this house-ish form for mm. four or five years now. 
And it seems mm -hmm. to me that every time you make one of these pieces, you show us a little bit more of the inside. That mm. there's been a progression of, you know, you couldn't quite see in it, or you couldn't see much that was in it. And mm. the piece at the Carnegie, you kind of recoiled in horror when I told you I was jumping up to try to look over the top. Yes. And you pointed out to me I was being stupid because I could have just looked from the bottom. Are you conscious of letting people, or is that intentional, letting people see more each time? Mm. That I, I think it'd be wonderful if people were able to enter sculpture galleries crawling on all fours so that they had an entirely different view of everything. I know that's not very You could do it friendly. next. You could do that next. I certainly couldn't do it because I've got false <laughs> knees. But I, I, I think the eye level thing is, is a kind of problem with sculpture, you know. And I think that, you know, certainly in a city like Rome, you've got sculpture high, low, you know, all over the place. And it's, it's, it's fantastic, you know. It only seems to be in a 20th century kind of convention in a way that sculpture should be an eye level art form, you know, but actually historically it's, it's never been that, you know. And I think that, you know, the idea of crouching to see something or just going lower down to see what it is. And that, that was a real discovery here because of the staircases taking you up into the galleries. That is an and, awesome thing here, yeah. Yeah, really remarkable to be in a gallery where that is possible, that, that sculpture can be seen from way below and then you come into it. It's, it was a tremendous feeling that when we were setting up the pieces. We've been talking about, I guess, every piece we've talked about really in terms of form and space. We haven't talked about color at all. Mm. Stockade's probably a good place to start with that. Mm. So the outside of the piece is a very recognizable Barlowian palette, one that's been in your work for a number of years now. What is the relationship between the color, or is there one, between the colors you use inside Stockade on the two by fours, mm. inside Stockade, and the colors we see on the outside? I think it's just a sort of aesthetic playfulness is to drag the color inside just as a trace. I don't think there's much more to say than that. It's almost in a way like a painting where maybe the neutral color of the canvas, if it is neutral, isn't doing quite enough. And so I took mm. the tim we took the timbers out and we just washed them with, with paint. But actually, a lot of those, I have to remember, come from another work. And so they were already painted. And a lot of the wood in the studio gets painted by default. You know, It's used for other works to rest on, and then it gradually accretes. <laughs> so do you keep track of, either in a formal way or in an informal way, what you're reusing from what exhibitions and installations? Mm. All the black palettes under the uh, house come from the Tate. They're the Tate chopped up. And then the... <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're those colored things there. Yeah, web images are, of them on manpodcast.com. They have become some of the, the lengths of wood inside the stockade piece. So, is so that... things are constantly, I mean, none of the tape work exists anymore. It only exists in my studio in great stacks of timber and 
things like that. So it's an incredible resource for future works. Is the physical relationship to the previous work conceptually important to you, or is it just part of the practice and part of the work? It's it's an evolutionary thing. It's, oh, oh, I did that there. I now want to try it here. Yes, and I want to try it again in a different way. As one goes through this show or, or any... Philip Barla show, the, the title cards list the materials of, of the pieces, and they're, they're pretty good reading in and of themselves, because there's kind of a lot in everything. And I'm curious about how you get to some of your materials and why they interest you. So for, for Fallen Tires, which is the piece with kind of the grayish painted meshy round forms. The heap of stuff. Yeah, the right. heap yeah. of stuff. You said it, not me. <laughs> uh, so I thought maybe that meshy painted material would be a good place to mm. maybe ask you to explain what about that material interests you. Well, the, all materials I use are materials that I can change because my process of making is very restless. It doesn't, I don't necessarily find a result immediately. So the materials enable me to cut into them or remove them or make new decisions. The meshy material is as old, old as the hills. The Egyptians were using it. It's called scrim. It comes in big rolls. You cut off a length of it and you can soak it in a material like cement or plaster. And then it sets hard and it adds extra strength to the plaster and the cement. So it's a very expedient material to use for a modeling process. So its appeal is its, was its expediency rather than... Initially, it's its expediency, mm. and then I try to exploit it aesthetically as well, in the sense that usually what happens with scrim, certainly if you look at a Henry Moore, which are built in that way, the scrim is kind of obliterated. And I remember him saying, you know, you don't want to show any of that material because it it shows how the things are made. And I never quite understood the logic of that, you know. (laughs) In his works, you will never see the scrim, although in the original plasters, it's there, you know, as it is in a lot of sculptors' work who use those materials. Another material I wanted to ask you about was fabric that you use in the downstairs piece at the Nasher. It's kind of a forest of where, where, the, where the fabric is the branches um, mm. and, and, and foliage of the trees and, and two-by-fours make up, make up the trunks. So you've played with fabric before, so in a, mm. in a piece at the Des Moines Arts Center four years ago, three years ago, something like that, you draped it over two forms. Two years mm. ago. You draped the fabric over forms, mm. and here the fabric is supported by, by these, by these two-by-fours. Mm. For you, what was the difference between draping and, and flag-like supporting? I think it's a formal one that the I started using these banners about 10 years ago, maybe longer ago, as a kind of prop almost that would intervene in the, in the space with a mm. flat blast of colour that acted almost gesturally, almost like a gestural piece of colour. In fact, in the Dallas show I did at UTD, there was a huge orange banner in that show, so it's longer than 10 years that I've been using them. For me, they don't really connect with nature. They collect, 
connect with human behavior. They're both, you know, the, the object that we see on the streets, maybe for protest or demonstration. They're also the object that I can be identified with festivity. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I yeah. think the blank, the blank banner, which is neither one thing or the other, fascinates me. It's like something that has its own inherent about to be something. And to me, the banner is also something that can be moved, you know, so there's the potential for the crowd of banners to almost take up arms and start <laughs> <laughs> to move up marching. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yet as a static object, it becomes for me very painterly and pictorial, especially as you come down the stairs. So colour is both a kind of gestural intervention in a, in a space, but also takes up a kind of formal residence there or habitation there of cutting through, occupying, and has, has a potential, in the case of the banners, to a potential for movement. The ones over the awnings was in a way rather similar, but I wanted to make the shape not an upright thing, but a thing coming into the space, across the space. And that's why they're draped in that way. So I wanted a very solid architectural form that was actually based on the kind of awnings that you can see in over shop windows or all sorts of places like over doorways, but then kind of counteract that architectural form with something that was very unusual to that, which was draping them with the, with the colored fabric. When you have as much fabric as you have in a, a hard museum space, one of the things that happens is it soaks up sound. So mm -hmm. as you go through the piece yes. here, so is that intentional or is that a nice no, byproduct? No, no, that, that's not intentional, but it's, it was something I noticed straight away. You know, I have a very odd relationship with all these fallouts from making work that it inevitably happens because I have absolutely no control over how things will get used or experienced. But to me, sculpture is a silent, still art form and we are the things that agitate it we walk around it we walk through it or against it you know but the thing itself is still and silent and that's what I personally love about it but the fact that the banners have offered another sentient experience you know is it wasn't in my wasn't on the script for them at all, mm. you know, um, but it's interesting that they yeah. do do that, yeah. So one of the things that Asher asked you to do was to pick some works from the permanent collection mm. that, that you wanted up while your stuff was up. And if somebody had told me you were going to pick three Joel Shapiro's, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I never <laughs> in a million years would have seen that coming. So we'll have images of all three of the Shapiro's you picked on, on manpodcast.com. Has he been important to you for a long time? Why did you pick those three? Well, I picked the blue crate because obviously it's, that's how I should have done them. 
the, the blue crate uh, in the Nasher collection has three legs, yes. and yes. Phil and his upturned crates have seven or eight. Yes, I know. So he, he, it just was the most wonderful sort of serendipitous experience to see that work in the collection, so it had to go in. And then I've always loved his sort of split, semi-collapsed, or things that are caught in a very uncomfortable moment formally. They look as if they're about to do the splits or mm -hmm. fall over. And I think that plays with the sculptural language so brilliantly. You know that sculpture isn't a table, it's not a chair. They, those things can be used, and I have used them up there. But they, they want to take those kinds of the, the familiar and take it by surprise and change it and make it do and behave in ways that things don't usually behave. And I think he, he does it with his work very, very successfully. And it's hard to figure out how heavy those pieces are. Mm, exactly. I mean, there is yes, that weightlessness we were talking yes, about before. Yeah. Or quite how it does I still stand in that, that way. I have no yes, idea how this yes, thing stands yes. up. <laughs> A couple other art, art history references mm. in, in the pieces. So in, in one of the kind of boulder type forms inside mm. here, there is a wooden and foam lined horseshoe-like shape mm -hmm. sticking out. <laughs> it's... Uh, it's, it feels like a pretty direct Richard Deacon quotation. <laughs> it wasn't. It isn't meant to be. If it is, I, you know, I, I love Richard Deacon's work, some of it. So that would be a great honor. But it, it was. It's actually based on some. I've been making those boulder-like shapes for some time and adding various prosthetic yes. interventions into them, and it's. It's really, they're really about giving the object a, a direction. It's almost like sticking a tongue out for me rather than a horseshoe. I know we're in Texas. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten who it was who said to me, thank you for the reference to Texas with the horseshoe shape. <laughs> and uh, I hadn't actually thought, I, I'd thought of it as a sort of, a kind of gesture that was, pointing outwards or taking, taking the object away from its position there and making it look into another direction. So that's what the aim of those ones, those added pieces were. How much do those boulder type shapes have to do with Franz Vest? Probably an enormous amount. <laughs> uh, his early work is some of my absolute favorite work and but i think the west the franz west influence is actually more in the horse again horseshoe shape the the curved plaster piece in the first room which you can enter i mean i'm thinking of franz west's earlier works which you actually stepped mm. into or I'm, picked up or, yes yeah. yeah exactly yes I mean, so Franz Vest and yours, I mean, he's, he's no longer with us, of course, mm. but your careers do more or less line up, mm. overlap. Do you remember when you became aware of his work uh, and, and, then, and then when you think his work began to inform yours? Oh, I mean, the minute I saw it, I felt oh, right this, is, this is a fantastic way of making the object have a very specific relationship with the viewer, 
you and know, the and, body. Yeah. Yes, and a, a quite a controlled relationship. I don't think I've ever done that, but I think with the objects that went on televisions and on chairs, in some ways were referencing that in an obtuse kind of way, you know. But I think especially the fact that he used plaster and he used it in this very quick, expedient way, enough was enough, was also a great influence, you know. And, but I think to then make a plaster object be something that you could enter and use and handle was also, I don't know, it just was like taking something that's usually used as quite a architectural, static kind of material and make it become very bodily was very attractive. So those early Franz Vest pieces that viewers, which is a word which only sort of fits, were mm. meant to pick up and handle were called adaptives. Mm. And they had these plaster forms on one end and then kind of a black stick coming out of them. So you mm. could pick them up and swing mm. them and you know use it like a baseball bat or a golf club or whatever. Mm. And now that you mention it, it does kind of seem like with Untitled Holder, the U-shaped piece, that there is a little bit of a temptation to, you know, take a brick out of the wall. And was that <laughs> intentional, that you want people to feel like, I'm not, I'm not suggesting they do it, but... I definitely wanted it to be a work that would draw you into the space. And in fact, my first choice of citing it went very awry. It just killed it stone dead. And then... We, thanks to Jed. <laughs> Jed Morris, curator here Jed, at the Nasher. Yes, yes. We tried four different locations for it, so we had to put it up and down four times and eventually freed it of all its kind of rather strict regulations I had imposed on it and just left it in the middle of the space where it, I think it, it's allowed to do its own thing very well. But I think this issue of touch is... For me, problematic. Uh, I think touch is a language. It's a non-verbal language. And how you imagine touching something seems to me to be more important than actually reaching out and touching it, where the minute you've touched it, the, the mystery or the imaginative process gets solved. You know, that's closure on it. And I think there are we talked about it yesterday, there are numerous art objects where there is a longing to touch or a longing to be interested in what this thing is. But I think that is up to us to work out. It's what we then want to imagine this might be. Is it hot or cold? And there are artists who now very much play with that, like Pierre Huyg made the figurative sculpture that is actually hot when you touch it. <laughs> I, I think that's a, a sort of fascinating game. I, I found that work, for me, very, you know, the minute you'd done that action, I didn't quite know what else there was to discover about it. I think it was more interesting in, in a sense where you became very aware that it was heated up. But to actually touch it meant that something ended, you know, you'd solved it. And I think I have personally a problem with art where there is that final answer. There is a one-line answer to the experience that you're engaging with. So to me, touch is one of the great 
great sort of mysteries of how we interpret the surface that's in front of us, what it might be, whether it's hot, cold, smooth or rough. It just seems a very beautiful experience to be engaging with. I prefer people not to touch my work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and certainly not to remove a brick from it because I'm <laughs> concerned about their, their safety more than I am oh, about yeah. the object. <laughs> I've, I've read you talk about that tension that the potential of tactility creates in the past. Is that something that you came to through working in your studio on a daily basis? Or is this something that goes back to when you were a teenager and touched something at the tape you shouldn't have? I think it came very much from first beginning to work with clay, that oh. you could work clay forever and ever and it would just die. And then, you, you know, barely touching it, if you were confident enough, you could get exactly the right moment caught there just through the minimal minimal amount of touching and so there were, there were all these different ways of touching and I was always interested in the issue about Eva Hess who seems to be somebody who's considered to be a very tactile artist but it's interesting that a lot of her work was hardly touched at all because of the materials being so lethal. Yeah. I think she used very particular wooden tongs to dip the muslin into the resin, etc. You know, and yet you think of a, an artist like McCracken with these highly, his early work, which were also resin, yeah. which look untouched, but every inch of them is, you know, sanded and sanded and sanded until it reaches that high specification that high shiny look about it so there's a sort of weird paradox about what might be considered a cool object like a john mccracken and a hot object like eva hess where they're actually the processes are very reversed and i think that was a kind of epiphany early on with the handling of materials you know does that have mm. something to do with so the upturned crates which mm. come up close to the gallery ceiling, are some of the most, at least visually tactile pieces in the show. Is that part of why they ended up up there? Yes, I think so. There's a sort of, I, I think the longing to do is a really powerful human instinct. And I think encouraging or, for me, allowing that to be a very emotional and thoughtful process and a very difficult thing to articulate verbally, as I think a lot of the senses are, you know. It, it's, it's a need to explore that with materials, to allow the materials to maybe engender that, those desires and hopefully make them become very positive experience about how and why you would want to touch. I mean, I think for me, you know, this sounds so fanciful and sentimental, you know, touching a dog or stroking a dog, I desperately miss my dog who died whenever it was, two or three years ago now, but I still miss that wonderful, that head that's there, you know, and always there. And it's, I think there are those very 
daily, very moving experiences that we go through, whether it's, you know, embracing our children or our loved ones, they're all highly powerful and wonderful experiences. And for me, sculpture can, can offer that as, not as a sort of literal experience where you've got to carry it out, but you, you can be reminded of those qualities that we have, as well as the opposite, that maybe there are things that are quite repellent as well. I think they operate in tandem, and I think they're part of a very powerful repertoire of sensations that sculpture can explore. You did an interview a couple of years ago, or a conversation, I should say, with Vincent Fecto in, in Bomb Magazine. Oh, yes, yes. And one of the things that the two of you, I think it was the two of you, discussed mm. was what artists, and in this case sculptors, of course, it, you know, what is the last thing they do in making yes, a piece, yes, and then yes. why it was the last thing mm. They, mm. they do in making a piece. So what was the last thing you did here, and why was it the end, the finish? It was all so on the go. The last sort of proper physical thing was actually binding the cemented canvas round the hanging monument. Oh. Um, but I worked on it with three people. Do you mean in terms of a physical yeah, action? Yeah. Yes, that was the last thing. So why was, we that, did. why was that the last? Well, I'll tell you what, we made, I made one. I made one earlier, as they do in the cooking programs. <laughs> <laughs> And there was a, a bit of a crisis with transport. <laughs> it was too big for the steel containers to mm. come across the sea. So within oh five days flat, we knocked up another one. So I and three, three assistants made the one that's there now that does fit into the container. And so that was the last thing. And the last actual gestures were the binding of the, the, with the strips of torn canvas. The canvas came from the Tate as well. It was ripped up into strips, dipped into cement and wrapped round as if it was like spools of some material. And then in order to hold that all in place, I then dipped long strips of scrim into cement and then added that on but that's an interesting really? yeah uh, then we adjusted the weight of it mm. and we had to adjust the weight of it again here but that's an interesting case in point because I didn't quite know when that one was finished and I kept on going and going and then it was Rupert and Adam who are were the assistants here who said look you've got to stop or it's getting, the next crisis we're going to have it's just going to be too heavy to go into the it, it is museum. impossible to figure how heavy that that that, that it's a little thing bit is. heavy <laughs> is 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 its weight so so the the thing the, that holds it up yes um, the, um, it has all hmm. these kind of steel beams yes all of that is absolutely essential to supporting it none of that although we were trying to m make it look shambolic in some way it looks uh, compositional yeah compositional that's a better way <laughs> but it's also utilitarian then yes absolutely yes because when i was so, trying to solve the joel shapiro mystery that was my first guess mm, is that mm. there was some joel shapiro in that stuff in all that yes. steel but no. on the back of that steel structure are a load of boxes filled with sand that then adds yeah. extra ballast to making sure it just doesn't <laughs> keel over. So it's a real kind of double 
security job on that one. But in terms of the wrapping, mm. you, you know, there's a, there was a side of me that just could have gone on and on and on doing it. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I think that thing of where something stops, I mean, how do we know what the last mark is on a Jackson Pollock or almost any painting? You know, it's quite interesting the point where an artist steps back and says, enough, you know, and maybe there are a lot of works where it actually isn't enough, you know, the... Even a Cezanne, you know, you painters can look have been known to go back to painting. <laughs> <laughs> Phil and Barlow, thanks so much. <laughs>